I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 4 and, and one more reinforcement of that freshman announcement. That's next Sunday. Next Sunday, I want to I have lunch with the freshmen. So please come join us. It's not far from here, maybe 15 minutes in an extraordinary mansion in La Cunada. And it's worth it just to see that experience. And we will have lunch together and we'll just hang out. There's not like a huge agenda, but we'll have some of our leaders there. And if you're a college freshman, we just want to get to know you and, and help get you plugged in around here. And uh, when you do that QR code, which we'll put up again at the end, uh, right after we're done, uh, that QR code will help you if you need a ride. So you can just let us know if you need a ride. We'll hijack a church bus or something. So... Uh, but we're going to need to ride together is the other thing. So if you, if you have other freshmen as a part of your life and you can carpool, that'd be great. So we don't have like a thousand junky freshman cars uh, lined up in the mansion. So apparently there's neighbors, mansions with neighbors. Uh, so that, that's, that's just my brief reiteration of the freshman grill out next Sunday. Looking forward to being with the newbies. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 4, please, and we continue in our study of the gospel of Mark to one of the most well-known parables in the Bible, one of the most famous teachings of Jesus in all the pages of the gospels, one that is so distinct to Jesus's ministry, so closely associated with him, one of his most well-known known sermons. Mark doesn't have very many sermons in it. That's not the kind of book it is. It's a book of, of rapid-paced action. There's only really two lengthy teaching portions, chapter 4 and chapter 14, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about the end times, and then this one where Jesus does this, this set of, of longer parables and that's really all the lengthy teaching you get from Jesus in this book because Mark is concerned to make a defense of why Jesus died on the cross, why discipleship was such a, a paradox, and, and several other concerns that we've highlighted. But I say that just to get you ready to hear, ready to hear Mark chapter 4. And today we'll look at verses 1 through 20. I'll begin by reading it to you. It says this. He, Jesus, began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched because it had no root. It withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, let 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his disciples, followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand, because they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and they have no firm root in themselves but are only temporary then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and a hundredfold. This is the very word of God. And like Jesus said, let him who has ears to hear, hear the word of God. Where'd you go to high school? Did you play any sports? One of my historical heroes would have answered that question quickly with a a famous answer. His name, John Charles Ryle. You've heard me talk about him. I quote him all the time. I call him Bishop Ryle because he was Bishop Ryle. He was the Bishop of Liverpool in 1880, something like that. And it was kind of the most prestigious church position he could be in in England in those days. But if you asked him where he went to high school and did you play any sports, it's maybe kind of a dude question, but we ask that kind of question sometimes. If you asked, you know, John Charles Ryle, uh, he was, he he would have answered with a well-known answer because J.C. Ryle was a jock. He was a jock and he went to a fancy school, Eton. And they didn't call it high school then. Uh, it's, it's England. They call everything by weird names. But he was a jock and he went to Eton. You've heard of Eton College. Uh, it was founded in 1440 by Henry VI. It's, it's kind of the most big-time male-only boarding school on earth. There's other rival schools, Ridley, uh, others in, in London that are, are well-known, but Eton's kind of the one. Uh, Eaton, I mean, both the Prince Harry and Prince William went there. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, 
Henry Fielding, George Orwell, 20 prime ministers went to Eton. Uh, and if that doesn't do it for you, Bear Grylls went to Eton. So it, it's sort of a, a big deal. It was founded as a, a school with this massive endowment of, of money and land right on the Thames. And 70 underprivileged young men were, were kind of given this privilege of this prestigious education. It was for hundreds of years only instructed in Latin. It was, it was the place to go to school. And if you went to Eton, you would either run the country of England or be able to eat bugs and survive anything. So it's that kind of a place. And uh, J.C. Rao was a jock there. And to be a jock in England meant he was uh, into cricket and rowing, not the kind that Bear Grylls eats, uh, but cricket the game. It's like baseball, but broken and stupid. So it's, I don't understand it. If you're an American, you also don't understand it. It's, you have to be from somewhere else to understand cricket. It's, it's long. I remember being in Ireland once and seeing an advertisement, or as they would say, advertisement, next to a cricket pitch, I think, field, whatever. And it was painted on this wall. It was for a paint company. And it said... Uh, the name of the paint company, and then it said over this cricket field, what? We like watching paint dry. That was their ad. It's, uh, again, tough joke for an American audience because you, you don't know anything about cricket. And if you did, it, it lasts for like four days, and it's mind-numbingly boring. Anyway, it is an athletic sport of some kind involving a bowler and a batter, and, and J.C. Rao was the best. He was the captain of the team, he uh, had a 10-wicket bowling triumph. Again, I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but he was a jock is the point. And he, he is, when he played for Oxford, which is where he went to college, uh, they won their match by 121 runs under his leadership. I mean, it sounds impressive. Again, no idea what any of it means. But Ryle was raised in the Christian faith. He... Uh, almost, uh, he was a, a finalist for a, a scholarship that really was, you know, a, a reflection of his knowledge of theology. So he was very smart. He was very athletic. He was very accomplished and highly educated. And, and not only that, I mean, you know, not everything can go right for everybody, but he was 6'3", and his dad was super, super rich. So tough, tough life, J.C. Ryle. Uh, his dad inherited like a silk manufacturing business that was international. And so J.C. Ryle just grew up with, with all the most extraordinary of privileges, knowing Christian theology and being a part of the church. But the thing is, is that J.C. Ryle, all those years of accomplishment and privilege and uh, success in sports and success in his studies, uh, graduating at the very top of his class. Uh, within a few years, he would be the most obvious candidate for prime minister. Working his way through parliament was the plan, and J.C. Ryle was going to use his father's vast fortunes to become an influential politician. He was a good man. He was a wise uh, and accomplished individual, but in 1838, during his college years, he came to realize during a period of, of unusual sickness 
that he was not converted. And he had heard the gospel his whole life. But there was one day in college where he heard a sermon after this long bout of illness. He heard a sermon on Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace you've been saved. Not of works, so you might not boast. And it was the hearing of that message about faith being the only way to be saved, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that somehow did something in John Charles Ryle's heart that had never been accomplished before. Countless sermons had been heard. The the Westminster Confession would have been so familiar to him, a a statement of of pure Christian theology. Good stuff was, was internalized in him, but it wasn't really rooted until that day when he heard Ephesians 2.8 preached and it changed his life completely. You see, three years later, as he began his career towards politics, in one day everything changed. His father's bank failed and they lost their entire fortune. All of it. They had one of those like Downton Abbey kind of houses, you know. I feel like I know what that show is. Don't, what do you think? I'm, I'm a cricketeer. I'm a jock. I don't watch Downton Abbey. Lady Grantham. What would I know about any of that? Anyway, like this big, massive English house lost it. He had an English mastiff, like the most handsome dog in the world. You know, those big English mastiffs, they call them. And he even lost his dog like left it with the country estate because they weigh like 250 pounds. It costs a lot to feed them. Lost it all. But because of his faith in Christ, he immediately pivoted. He, he knew he couldn't afford politics. He was going to use his dad's money to you know, run campaigns and stuff like that, but there was no more father's money. But in those years after his conversion, he he became more and more interested in spiritual things. He actually began to teach the Bible to people who were interested. And so he immediately pivoted, having been this massive reversal of fortune from riches to rags, he decided that he would become a pastor. And everything that Ryle touched in ministry was fruitful and blessed. Tiny little country churches would be packed with people wanting to hear J.C. Rao preach the gospel because they saw in him, well, well, the description that everybody liked to use about him was the man of granite with the heart of a child. He was this big, tall, buff, long, white-bearded dude who just preached with incredible conviction, but an equal amount of grace. And it's because of that change that happened in J.C. Rao when he really heard the word of God. And and his passion was to preach the word to people and see them affected by it. Not just preach quality sermons, not just, you know, have a big church. I mean, he went from parish to parish preaching and he was always so concerned about the effect of it, because he knew for his whole life he'd heard the word preached, but he'd never really heard it. It hit his ears, and 
He, he didn't, he, I mean, he, when he got saved, he gave up billiards and dancing. I mean, it wasn't like he was, you know, snorting crack or something. Did he snort crack? I'm not really sure. That was, that was like, I mean, he wasn't like he had this outwardly sinful lifestyle. I mean, he's J.C. Ryle. He was, he was, he was, obedient to his parents. He was a a great student. But see, he wasn't really saved until that day when the word was in effect inside his heart. And so that was the passion of his ministry, a genuine godliness with this manly kind of approach to things where he could be bold and courageous, uncompromising, but incredibly kind and gentle and generous and patient. And I think it's why I love Ryle's preaching more than Spurgeon, more than any other kind of historical uh, guy that I've studied and read a lot of their sermons, uh, Edwards, Augustine. I've read lots of sermons from lots of church history. And for some reason, J.C. Ryle is the guy who always stirs my soul, the Bishop Ryle. And it's because his conversion was always right in front of him. And he was so aware of the word having its effect on his heart. Eventually, when he was, I think, I mean, far past the age of retirement, I think 1880, he was getting close to his 80s, he became the Bishop of Liverpool, the most prestigious you know, pastoral position in the country, basically. And within a few years, he died. He was 84 years old, something like that. A magazine wrote about his death, and this is a paragraph from a contemporary magazine. It said, John Charles Ryle was an outstanding example of the power of a life that shirked no conviction and brooked no compromise. Controversial if needs must be, but without bitterness of speech or narrowness of thought. Fearless, steadfast, and reserved before his fellow men. Gentle, patient, and devout before the holy God. He was married three times. Two of his wives died, leaving him to care for the children alone brokenhearted, but persevering, gentle, devout, uncompromising. The man of granite with the heart of a child. This is what happens when the word of God falls on a heart that's ready to receive it. It grows and multiplies and bears much fruit. You see, lots of people hear sermons and even study the Bible and go to church, but have no real grace in them. And that's Mark's concern in this passage. You understand that This is real history, the gospel writers, but they don't write it in kindergarten chronology. I mean, basic chronology, like usually the 
beginning of Jesus's life or ministry and then the, the cross and the resurrection. But everything in between, you know, isn't in proper day-by-day order. You get that, right? That, that's not how they did history and that's not how they composed these gospels. They were written with incredible style and creativity and, and we've seen that in the gospel of Mark. And the reason I tell you that is is to help you understand what we're looking at here. There's a reason Mark puts this. If he's only going to feature two lengthy sermons of Jesus in the whole gospel, there's a reason he puts this here. There's a reason he uses the word listen. It's in the imperative, akuo. It's where we get our word acoustics from. He puts it in this text ten times. Listen, 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 listen. Ten times he tells his hearers to listen because that's what this parable is all about. And what Mark has talked about so far has been what real discipleship looks like when there's crowds of followers. Because just being around Jesus or being close to Jesus' people or going after the benefits of being associated with Jesus does not make you a true disciple. That's been what Mark has been pressing on us as he describes these massive crowds. And then explains that there was another group called disciples, but even among them, a traitor. Mark is deeply concerned in his defense of Jesus' work on the cross that his readers understand true discipleship. That what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus. And so he places at the very beginning of the most detailed section of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Mark, the parable of the soils sometimes called the parable of the sower, but the real feature of this parable is dirt. It's the different places that the seeds land. And everybody knows this story. There's, there's four different landing places featured in verse 4 and verse 5, verse 7, and verse 8. It's seed that falls by the road, and it's the rocky soil, and it's the thorny ground, and then it's the, the seed that falls in the good soil. It's a really basic parable. There's not a ton hidden here. And I'll talk to you more about parables next week. Jesus actually teaches 60 parables. And parables have a very distinct purpose, some of which was talked about in the middle of this section, why he speaks in parables. But I think it's best to consider that when we look at the rest of this chapter next week. Today, I just want you to hear the parable of the sower And when J.C. Ryle preached on this parable, it had a particular effect on him because he saw himself in these soils. He saw how close he had been to having the, the riches and cares of this world choke out any genuine faith. He saw how close he had been to a hard-hearted ambivalence towards the, the word of God because there was all those years that went by up to his college years until he saw genuine life change and the mark of that genuine life change being lasting spiritual fruit. And so I want to talk to you in, in Bishop Ryle terms. In fact, this is how he starts talking about the parable of the sower. He said this, these verses contain the parable of the sower. 
Of all the parables spoken by our Lord, none is probably so well known as this. There is none which is so easily understood by all from the gracious familiarity of the figures which it contains. There is none which is such universal and perpetual application. So long as there is a church of Christ and a congregation of Christians, so long there will be employment for this parable. This parable has a job to do. It always has and it always will. This parable has something for every single one of you with ears today, with a soul today. Ra goes on with this sentence. The language of the parable requires no explanation. To use the words of an ancient writer, it needs application, not exposition. That hurts my feelings a little bit because I spent the whole week like explaining, you know, ancient Near Eastern agriculture and I have like a million pages on my notes function. It's, it's where I do sermons these days uh, that can talk to you about all the details of like, you know, farming in the ancient world and why this guy chucks it all over the place. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I got some stuff on birds if you're interested, but as I listen to Ryle talk about this this parable and heard those words, it needs application, not exposition. It's not that I don't want to explain it to you. I I will. But I want you to get the point of this parable. To hear it. To listen to it. To let the seed of, of this message sink down into your heart and for you to think, what kind of heart do I have toward the word of God? What kind of reception do I give to scripture, to preaching, to God, to to Jesus, to the gospel? Am I open to hearing or am I just part of the crowd? And so let's look at this in three parts, but really focus on the third, the story of the seeds, the secret of the kingdom, and the substance of the story. The story of the seeds begins with an introduction in verse 1, and it goes all the way to verse 9. That's the story of the seeds. Verse 1, he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got out into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. This begins like so much of what we've seen in Mark so far, doesn't it? It's the crowds in his teaching. That's what Mark has talked about from the first chapter. The, the crowds. He uses a word here, uh, pelestas. It's, it's like the most biggest, the largest, the, the most uh, crowded crowd that has ever approached Jesus is featured here in this story. It's been so bad, he had to have a boat warmed up in the... And in those days when you warmed up a boat, it was just like somebody was doing push-ups to to make a boat go, but he had the boat ready to get him out of there because the crowd was going to crush him in the last chapter. This is an even bigger crowd, the largest yet, most likely. And he begins by starting his sermon in a boat on the sea in one of these natural acoustic areas in the north. And so from this boat, he, he assumed the, the, the seat of the teacher. Back then, teachers sat and audiences would sit and stand. 
But he sat in this boat, pushed out in the water a little way into this kind of cove-like area to this massive crowd, hundreds and hundreds of people likely, maybe even more than that. And the sea is his pulpit. And the boat is his lectern. And he sits in this traditional manner to do what Mark said in chapter 122, to proclaim the kingdom of God. So you have, you have crowds and you have teaching. And now he's going to do a, a parable. And this isn't the first parable we've heard. Remember last week, chapter 3, verse 23, he began with some parables. And, and you're like, I don't remember a parable. But that's because in English, we think parable like long story, allegorical, which parts line up with which parts. In Greek and Hebrew, the concept of parable is much more broad. Little proverbial sayings, analogies, illustrations, similitudes, similes, proverbs, metaphors, analogies, riddles, illustrations, all those count as parables. So when Jesus talked about no one can uh, plunder a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man, I mean, that was a, a short walk and it wasn't much to it, but that's a parable and he called it that in 323. And so here Jesus gives us a more traditional parable. And Jesus didn't invent parables, but he did master them. They existed in rabbinical literature and in, in the outside world, but no one is more well-known for teaching in parables in all of history than our Lord. Both in frequency and effect, Jesus' parables are unique, 60 of them from the mind of Rabbi Jesus. Again, more on those parables next week. And just to help you with this one, the key to understanding the parables isn't to you know, parse each part of it. And I think sometimes, and why Ryle says, you know, this doesn't need explanation as much as it needs application, is because sometimes if you get into the weeds, pardon the pun, of a parable, you miss the point. Because you're trying to figure out, like, verse 6, when the sun had risen... And was scorched. So, what is the rising of the sun in this parable? It's the resurrection of the Lord, isn't it? No, it's not. That's crazy talk. And I'll show you some examples next week when we do a little little thing on parables. The church fathers used to do really weird stuff on the parables, taking every single piece and trying to identify what it might be. But that's not how you handle any parable, much less this one. This is simply a story of soil, a story of seeds on soil. And it's a story that commands us in akuate to listen, an imperative theme that permeates this entire section of teaching. You see it there in verse 9 and 15 and 16 and through the rest of the chapter 18, 20, 23, 24, over and over again. It's two words actually, listen and look, usually paired together, calling on the, the hearers to bring their senses to bear because this is of crucial importance to your soul. And so here the parable is being lived out as Jesus sits in the boat and speaks about the kingdom of God, saying to them in his teaching exactly what they need to hear, but so many of them can not hear it. They can't comprehend it. They can't grasp it. 
And the story is simple enough. Verse 4, as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. Paths going through fields to help the farmer traverse made hard ground, either from wheels of carts or from frequent travel. This isn't a place where seeds could grow. And so immediately birds would come and eat that seed because birds like seed. There's a kind of bird in the ancient nearest. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to go there. I think all birds like seed. The next kind of soil is in verse 5. It's the rocky soil. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately sprang up. And because it had no depth of soil, after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Fast growth for this little seed but there was nowhere for those roots to go. They, they bottomed out. There was not enough what one agriculturist calls nutrients to feed the little plant. And so it, it springs up fast and then the sun just cooks the thing and it's dried up and dead. The third one is, is verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked it and yielded no crop. And so this seed grows alongside other competing plants called thorns or weeds or thistles, and they both grow up together. There seems to be no problem with the soil. The problem is the other conditions, the, the, the competing weeds that have this ability to tangle that young plant and to overcrowd it and to choke it out. And then the fourth seed falling onto good soil, growing up. And the only thing that really marks the difference is that this seed is fruitful. And then Jesus' words again in verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's simply the story of the seeds in the soil. There's a word in the middle here that I want to call the secret of the kingdom. And it's enough for this week. We'll return to look at this passage a little closer. Uh, verses 10 through 12, uh, along with the parables that follow. But there is, I think the word to note there is in verse 11. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. We hear the word mystery. We think like Sherlock with the, como se dice, uh, thing you look through to magnify, magnifying glass, you know what they're called. And we think of that sort of mystery, like, hmm, what's, what's, what's happening over here? We've got to investigate it. That's not what the New Testament word for mystery means. It, it simply means something that is hidden, that is being revealed. It, it barely ever occurs in the Gospels, really only in this story, in the synoptics. And then the Apostle Paul uses it in his epistles more than 20 times. The mystery shown here is, is that Jesus is intentionally speaking in a way that's going to reveal truth to some and conceal truth to others. And to think of the intentional hardening and intentional concealing going on should not make you want to remove culpability let me say this in English. If Jesus is telling you that the parables exist not to make things more clear to everyone, but to conceal 
some things from unbelievers and to reveal other things from believers in the middle of a parable about can you really hear the word of God? Has it really planted in your heart? Have you really experienced life change? Do you really know God savingly? Or are you a fake believer who's just heard so much scripture it doesn't even, it doesn't even register anymore? During a parable like that, Jesus is saying that, that God is actually working in a way in order to reveal and conceal. That shouldn't make you go, well, uh, then it isn't even up to me. That should make you all the more concerned to receive this word carefully. Like Pharaoh of old, yes, God hardened his heart, but how many times did Pharaoh first harden his own heart? And so the words of the epistle of Hebrews keep ringing in our ears. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because parables can harden just as much as they can soften. Parables can conceal just as much as they can reveal. And so understanding the simplicity of the story of the seeds in the soil and then looking at verses 10 through 12 at the secret of the kingdom, the third and final aspect is Jesus' explanation and I call it the substance of the story, the substance of the story and that's verses 13 through 20. What is the substance of the story? And here's where we need to spend our time on application. And I would urge you to carefully join me in thinking about this. If you could, take your heart out and put it in your hands. And what I mean by that is think carefully about your own condition. Think about the condition of your soul today where you sit. Whether you're in your first year of college or or whether you have been listening to sermons in this room for a decade or more, take your heart out and carefully examine it and think about how have I responded to the word of God? How do I receive the Bible? How do I think about spiritual things? Are they valuable to me? What kind of effect has it had on my life? Take that heart and hold it carefully and think very wisely about yourself what kind of hearer you are, what kind of impact has the word of God made? Have you heard it with profit? Have you seen evidence of grace? Do you see any fruit? How does Jesus explain his own parable? Verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? I think what he's saying is that this one unlocks all of them. Why? Because this one is about hearing Jesus, about receiving Jesus, about knowing the word. How can you understand what 10 lampstands have to do with anything? How can you understand about mustard seeds? And how can you understand about other kingdom principles unless you understand this one? This is the point of interest. This 
is the sine qua non. This is that one essential thing. If you can't receive the word of God at the outset, there is no concern for sexual purity. There is no concern for godly and holy living. There should be no concern for eschatology. There should be no concern for denominational unity. I don't care what you care about if you don't care about this. Because this is what matters. This is what does the word do when it hits your heart that very first time? Did it grow and did it thrive and did it produce fruit? So holding your heart, knowing that none of the rest of the scriptures can matter to you, no aspect of Christian maturity can be applicable to you. If you can't get this proverb, there isn't a proverb for you. That's why this one's so crucial. And so Jesus walks us through it, carefully looking at this crowd, but calling aside his disciples, knowing some of them represent the crowd more than they do their master, and says to them in verse 14, the sower sows the word. That's Jesus. That's every preacher who's ever preached. That's your grandmother opening her Bible and sharing it with you. That's your mom uh, by the side of your bed when you were a kid explaining the gospel to you. That's a a sermon on the radio. That's a, a, a packed stadium of people listening to some evangelist preach the gospel. That's some weird dude that came up to you at Chipotle and was like, hey, I saw you were talking to Mormons. You know, that's a false religion, right? Let me invite you to church. It's every single circumstance where the gospel's ever been on the lips of anyone who has proclaimed it. It's every time a Christian speaks well of his Lord. The sower sows the word. The farmer puts his hand in his satchel and grabs out a bunch of seeds and he just chucks them. Throws them out there. And there is a kind of indiscriminate wantonness to this sowing. And the commentators fight about agriculture for pages like, well, is this ordinary kind of method or not ordinary kind of method? I don't care. Jesus doesn't seem to care. He just simply says the sower sows the word. He just puts it out there. And and this is a word to those of you who have a concern for evangelism. Look, there's plenty to say about you know, not throwing pearls before swine and, and exercising good judgment in, you know, when you are wasting your time, but there's also something to say about this indiscriminate seed chucking that I think should help us to know what our role is. And here's that first soil, not exposited, but applied, verse 15. The soil that fell by the road. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. First, soil is not really soil. It's hard, rocky ground. What does that look like? Well, Jesus' words are are telling. Notice what it has in common with all other soils. There's seed there. 
The, the seed hits, it, it lands, but it doesn't settle in, it, it bounces off. Because of the hardness of the ground, because of the inappropriateness of the soil, this is the seed that doesn't ever germinate. It's just the seed. There's no flash of growth, it's just seed. It's just the word. And it hits these soil, these hearts, these hearers, and apparently they hear it, verse 15 in the middle, when they hear. But they don't actually hear it, right? They have ears and it registered sounds, but it's the Charlie Brown teacher thing, right? Is that you? Because I think that's the vast majority of churchgoers. You've heard more sermons than you could count. And you have paid no attention. You are so distracted. Screwtape letters. I was giving away copies of Screwtape letters like the sower giving out seed last week to the Mustang types. Because I love that book. It's a good book thinking about the nature of temptation. In one particular scene... I remember a man being convicted to some degree by the preaching of the word in a church and then the, the master devil writing to his young apprentice and how to you know, get this guy to stop following after things of the Lord says, you know, what we got to do is distract him. And he goes outside of the church, you know, thinking about what he heard and immediately he sees like the number 73 on a delivery van and he sees like a dog barking or just some completely asinine thing and he goes on 73, dog barking, 73, dog barking, blah, blah, blah. What was I thinking about earlier? No idea and he's done. The devil loves that kind of stuff. Distraction and diversion. It's like you've heard the gospel, you've heard the nature of the kingdom explained a thousand times, but it's as if someone's speaking a different language to you. It's just sounds. There is no effect whatsoever. No affection for God, no love for Christ, no heart for people. There's nothing. If this is you, your heart is hard and you are careless and inattentive. And there's a very good chance that you are here right now because they were in the presence of Jesus. This crowd was drawn to him for a thousand different reasons. They put their church clothes on and they came to him day after day and for centuries they still come and they fill churches and they have religion but they have no faith. They worship with their voices, but their hearts have no fear of God in them. They have a knowledge to some degree, but they have no understanding. They're present, but they do not care. And the death of Christ means nothing to them, nothing that matters. But they keep dressing up every week, and they will hear and hear and hear, and hear, and hear, and die, and go to hell. 
Has the word of God had zero effect on you? Is there any evidence of grace? Any contrition over sin? Any sign of life and repentance? If not, your heart is as hard as the road and the word just keeps bouncing off of it. I do think these are triaged and I think that's the most common place to be. It's where all of us were before we heard with hearing. The second soil is the rocky soil. It's described for us in verse 16 in a similar way. Jesus says, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Mark uses his favorite word there two times immediately, once to talk about the initial reception and once to talk about the folding upon persecution. This is a very different kind of seed. I told you that it's soil that's thin. There's rock underneath it and it's just a little bit of dirt. And so what does this look like in application? It looks like Christian growth. It looks like accepting Jesus. It looks like responding to an altar call. It looks like praying a prayer. It looks like getting hyped about some spiritual stuff. It looks like enthusiasm. It looks like some love for Christ and awareness of of sin. And, And it looks great. In fact, it looks exactly like the fourth soil for a minute. Or for 10 minutes. Or for 10 months, maybe. Or maybe longer. But whatever it is, the effects are temporary, not lasting, not deep. Nothing sticks with this kind of heart. If you can look back on your life and you see a time where you were thriving spiritually, when like a a green plant were sprouting up, but you've got nothing now, I wonder if this is your heart depicted perfectly. Nothing sticks. You like sermons. Enough. And small groups are fun and social. And you go to Bible studies, but there's no stability. There's no root. These are Christians who went to camp. And I've been going to camp for a long time. And lots of kids go to summer camp and hear the gospel and go, bang, that that was awesome. I love Jesus and obstacle courses. But when they actually get problems, camp was a long time ago. 
And usually that kind of event-oriented Christian doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be camp. It, it could honestly be church. And they just, they got to get back to the thing. They got to get back to the thing, to the event. And they're attenders and, and they, they can show that, you know, there's been some growth, but not anymore, no root, and especially no fruit. The Bible talks about this kind of temporary believer with a metaphor of grass. Not the dispensary kind, the regular kind. Grass. And in Southern California, if you're from a place that actually grows grass, you you might understand this differently, but I could translate it. I used to cut grass for a living. I was a professional landscaper for like two summers. But my phone number was 505-280-TURF. I mean, it was a, I was real. And I learned some of the mechanics of grass. And, and the thing is, in any desert climate like this one, if the sprinklers are down, the grass is dead. It's profound, I know. It's amazing I'm not an agricultural guru. But you crank the sprinklers up again, and what happens? The grass back again. If you live in a a place where there's actually water involved in the climate, grass is everywhere. And when Californians, when we go and visit a place like that, we go to North Carolina or something, we're like, whoa, our eyes are overwhelmed with green. It's like a different planet. And it's like that here in February. And then it's over, yellow dead. The grass withers, the flower fades. Man's transience and his temporary status, often depicted by grass, is also a parabolic consideration of how quickly one can sprout but not be substantive. The opposite metaphor is that of a tree with deep roots that can endure dry seasons but continue to put forth leaves and shade and life. If you're a grassy Christian, you're highly deceived. You're a Christian by title, but not actually converted. You have temporary feelings, temporary affections, and you, like all the rest, are on the road to hell. And what will expose this reality in your heart is not the initial joy you can look back on, but when difficulty, affliction, persecution arises in your life because of your commitment to Christ, because of the word, immediately you close up shop. If you're a rocky soil Christian, you've never explained the gospel to somebody and got pushed back and then explained it again. That is not your thing. You preach the gospel, and you don't use words if necessary. You just do it by like going to Chick-fil-A and doing other Christian things. You don't actually have what it takes to endure a storm. 
friend of mine pastors in Mobile, Alabama, and he sent me a picture of like his house like from space, you know, one of those pictures of that big hurricane that's rolling in to the Gulf Coast every year. Hurricanes rolling, big one rolling in today. And he put a little dot and his house was like on the edge of this massive, giant, churning hurricane that you could see from outer space. And he put that red dot right there and that was where he was. And I thought of him and they canceled church because they wouldn't have electricity today. All of that, the wind and the waves and the storms that come, when that comes in a, in a life like this soil, it's not going to take the eye of the storm or the, the hardest hitting part of the storm to endure any of it. You be on the edge of that storm and you won't hold up. You'll deny, you'll walk away, you'll fold up shop. Maybe you'll come back to church every single Sunday. But any time you're confronted with difficulty, a difficult diagnosis, adverse circumstances, or persecution for your faith, you're out. So many of those who follow Jesus are depicted this way. When the teaching gets hard, when the religious leaders are, are pressing in and pressuring, Jesus' disciple numbers shrink. A third soil, verse 18. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful this one is the most vividly depicted of all, and it is the one that lasts the longest, relatively speaking. This is a, a person who professes faith in Christ, similar to the rocky soil, shoots up with joyous growth, and change is evident in their life. They probably get baptized, and they probably uh, take a membership class, and they probably get involved in Christian ministry and service, and they really become a part of the Christian community and they start to invest their lives there and they seem like everybody else in the church. Little do they know that they have more in common with the, the seeds that got snatched up and the rocky soil that withers and dies and they think that they're immune because they've been here for quite some time and they seem to be a picture of, of growth. They have feelings and affections for the Lord. They love to listen to the preaching of the word, but things start to compete. Busy things, concerns. And who wouldn't have concerns? Because you got to pay your bills and you got to finish your semester and then you got to write your dissertation and then you got to plan a wedding and then you got to get a house and then you got to figure out how to refi and then you got to have some kids and you got to get your kids to get to good grades and you got to get them to get the right friends and you got to get them to get into school and you got to get them to live close by and then you got to get your stuff in order so you can get an RV and cruise. All the concerns of life become the concerns of your soul. The ordinary elements choke 
out your faith. They choke out your soul. They're called by Jesus the anxieties of the world. They're commonplace concerns that do not take second place but take first priority in the heart. And they're accompanied by other temptations. One is ordinary and one is flashy. The second is the deceitfulness of riches. You got to build your portfolio. You got to manage your wealth. You got to make twice as much money as you're making now because you got to, you know, maintain your airplane. And so the deceitfulness of riches. The fact that riches never satisfy and their multiplication is never sufficient. And then a third, the desire for other things. This is just a a general junk drawer. This is all the stuff of life that crowds out your concern for fruitfulness and faithfulness. And those things become predominant in you. And they look like a normal American life. But on the spiritual reality, they look like vines that grow up around your soul and choke your spiritual vitality to death and expose that it wasn't real to begin with. All you care about is the stuff you care about. And then the final soil. It's just called good. And those who have their heart in their hands and see all the inadequacies of their heart, they see how hard-hearted they have been and they see that there's been times when attractional and eventual kind of Christianity was, was what they were concerned about. But they've seen growth, but they worry about their worries and they wonder, is this my heart? Is this really me? Who am I before God? What's my heart really look like? What they will see, those in the good soil, those who are genuine disciples and true followers of Jesus, they hear the word and they accept it and they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. You see, that's an extraordinary harvest depicted an unusual crop, to have a three-time harvest or a seven-time harvest would have been something to talk about in this world. But to have 30, 60, and 100-fold is marvelous. And it's these who we want to be. And there's not very many of them, but the gospel was preached to them. And though they be few, you see them because their world refuses to fall apart. They stay fixed and focused on Christ. And when troubles and trials come, they drive, that drives them closer to Christ. And when the ordinary concerns of the world multiply around them, they stay committed to things of God. And there's a distinction between them and the rest of the world. The seed has fallen on good ground and it's the same seed that hit all those other spots but there's visible and continual repentance, visible and ongoing faith in Christ and visible pursuit of holiness. Not perfection, but a desire to be genuinely connected to Jesus. And so we start with Jesus' word.
If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Which one are you? Which kind of soil is your heart? There's three ways of hearing that in the end have zero profit. And there's only one way of hearing rightly. Only one mark of being that kind of heart and its fruitfulness. So are you growing and going and spreading seed to this world? Because that's what it looks like if the word has had a real impact on your heart. Father, thank you for this opportunity to examine and evaluate our own hearts. Work your grace in us, we ask, that you would expose hearts that are hard, that are consumed with other things, that are weak-rooted and could never endure a storm of affliction or persecution. Help us, God, to receive your word, knowing that you are the only one that can cause that kind of abundant harvest. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.